Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, said Jesus, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Thank you for the text and ladies for that song. Wow, I think that was one of the strongest numbers you've done yet. That was, was right on. The text today focuses on discipleship. Come, follow me. Now, this is not a new text to you. In fact, I worry when I have texts like this because I think you just oh, heard this. Closed go the ears, out come the book, the magazine, the conversation starts, whatever. We're done with this one. We know this one. We can go home. But the context of today's talk is not just this idea of coming and following Jesus, but what it really means in terms of being parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, what it means in terms of being teachers or Sabbath school teachers or influences on the lives of not just one another and and our adult selves and maybe our spouses but our children. We always hear the words of Jesus when the disciples have been keeping the little children away. He says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Do not keep them back for such is the kingdom of heaven. We, We listen to that text and it's all about Jesus blessing the children and having time for the children. And what a nice guy Jesus is to be able to do this out of his busy schedule of taking care of adults. It's typically how we read that, isn't it? You can nod or say, no, that's not how I've read it. Uh, That's how we've typically read it. But I think if we look at it a little closer, Jesus' invitation to children is actually more open than that. I think Jesus' invitation to have the children come is not just for a quick moment of sitting on the lap and a blessing as we've supposed, or as I've recently heard it reframed and probably more correctly understood, nor was it about Jesus previewing potential candidates for his rabbinic school. Bear in mind that a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah takes place at what age? 13. So by the time a young person, particularly a young man, was around 11, 12, 13 and getting ready to move forward into a career, the influence of a master would be very important. Discipleship in that case, apprenticeship to a spiritual master would start very early. And the children being referred to are those being groomed to make it into one of the good mentoring programs, one of the prophetic schools, as it were, one of the schools of the Pharisees or Sadducees, a rabbinic school. And Jesus was more than just a common teacher, wasn't he? Yeah, okay, good. Glad we're clear on that. As Mark points out, he starts out with the disciples, even to the disciples, as simply being teacher. But the progression that takes place to Son of God in their understanding is a remarkable one. 
This is one who has jurisdiction over the natural world. This is one who has jurisdiction over the supernatural world of demons. This is one who has jurisdiction over the physical world of ailments and illnesses. This is one who commands and things happen. This is no ordinary prophet. This is no ordinary priest. This is no ordinary teacher. This is the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. And when he invites the children to come, I believe he does so at a deeper level than we've given him credit for. Because what we see very quickly with the few encounters that we know of with Jesus and children is that they immediately trust and know who he is. Is that the same way with adults? Do adults respond the same way? They do not, do they? There's inquiry, suspicion, mistrust. Jesus isn't safe for some adults. There are politics to be considered, alignments, schools. Is he a liberal or a conservative? We wouldn't want to be caught in the wrong company now. And children have no such filters. They see Jesus and they know Jesus for who he is. Maybe not theologically as son of God, but the children in their openness know and they want to come. Their parents don't just want this for them. They're ready to be blessed by Jesus. But if we look at that part of the story, it takes a parent to bring the child to Jesus. Or I would expand that, a grandparent, an aunt, a mentor friend, a neighbor, a a cousin, a teacher. It takes someone to say, let's go see Jesus. Children are prone to discipleship, aren't they? They follow. They want to do what we do. They are great imitators, much to our shame at times. My wife has a colleague. I think this is far enough away from all of us to be a safe story. My wife has a colleague whose sister shared with her this story. It borders, by the way, uh, on the racist side, if not a little on the politically incorrect side. Little stroller-bound child just learning to speak. The mother has been very clear driving around. Whenever a vehicle gets in her way with an Asian person at the wheel, the mother would spit words. Let's go, Chinese. And so here at the grocery line, the mother and the child in the wheelchair sit, and the line is moving very slowly. 
And what does the child scream out in the grocery store? Let's go, Chinese! Ay, ay, ay. Okay. If you're, do I need to give the commercial? If you're of Asian or other origin and offended by this comment, please send out. Anyway, I, it's a story. True one, by the way. Much to this mother's chagrin, the child also picked up a number of colorful four-letter words to use in some very specific circumstances. We nod our heads and say, oh, bad parent. Really? Your child hasn't imitated you doing something that you're embarrassed about? Unfortunately, my own child is a chip off the old block. And many of my strengths are fabulously reproduced. (laughs) And many of my weaknesses as well. And I can only hope that he transcends them better than I have. But is that what children do? Not if you're with me. Great. They do. So turn now from this invitation of Jesus in Matthew, which we're so familiar with. Come, follow me. And we watch and we see that the disciples immediately lay down their nets and they're ready to go. And we would be like that, but it's tough for us. And let's shift to the Old Testament counter to this or equivalent. Deuteronomy, please, chapter 6. Remember that the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the what? Shema. Recited at every worship service, every prayer really for the Hebrew, for the Jew. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Sound familiar? Who said it? Jesus says it in the New Testament and that's where most of us know it from. But Jesus is taking that straight out of the tradition. When he is approached and said, what are the commandments that I need to keep? Jesus summarizes them. When he's approached about what the greatest laws are, the the importance of the law, he summarizes them using Deuteronomy. Love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. Taken straight from the tradition. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Interesting. We live in a world that's debating whether or not it's okay to have the Ten Commandments on a slab of stone outside a courthouse. I have no particular acts to grind one way or the other. But we certainly can't have them in classrooms anymore. But we think that as bad as that is, maybe we're not into that particular issue. What the Bible tells us here 
is not to post them everywhere you can. You'll notice that we haven't put a giant Ten Commandments up here that are readable so that you can all be reminded week to week of what they say. How many of you pretty much got the gist of the commandments? You, could, you pretty much know them. You might miss one out of the ten, but you could pretty much... Uh, you might get the order of a couple of them out of sequence, but you could pretty much nail the ten if you had to writing them down. Raise your hands high. Almost everybody. The question isn't one of posting. The question is one of positioning. And where are the commandments to be positioned according to Deuteronomy? In our heart. What does Jesus say as part of the new covenant? What does God say? I'm going to write my laws on their hearts, on the fleshy tables of their hearts. We're not talking about stone. We're not talking about an imposed thing anymore. We're talking about something that becomes intrinsic inside of you, part of you, part of the very fabric of who God has called you and made you to be. And then the way in which this happens is spelled out for us. Again, Deuteronomy 5, the giving of the whole law, the commandments, and then it goes through chapter 5. We get to chapter 6 and the Shema. And this summary, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And nobody who believes in God, nobody who wants in any kind of way to follow God, nobody who would claim to be a Christian would disagree that this is what needs to be done. But then it tells us what we are to do. Not only these commandments to be on your hearts, and by the way, this is pre-New Covenant. It says, impress them on who? Your children. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, which is really hard to do when one room has music and the other room has reality TV and it's really much more important that the math assignment get addressed than that we have a conversation. Talk about them when you walk along the road. Well, we don't do that anymore, do we? Walk along roads jog maybe, go to the athletic club maybe, but with our children. I'm not suggesting that you have to walk along a road with your child to fulfill the command. But how many of you spend at least 10 minutes a day in a car with a child? There's your time. I'm going to tell a story. I've told some hard stories on my family. I'm going to tell a good story on my family. My father, I'm sure, had a great deal to do with me being a pastor, maybe more than any other person. Because he did this. We lived in Sonora, but we lived... Sonora is like... A nothing little town, at least when I was growing up. It's now pretty big. But when I was growing up, it was maybe three, 4,000 people. It was a big deal when they put a stop sign in downtown. I mean, a stoplight, our first stoplight, you know. Huge. It was 
the community talked about it for three years. Can you believe the modernization that's coming to our town? It was shocking. It was upsetting. We're growing too fast. I had a 10 grade school that I went to with 69 kids. That's 6.9 per grade for those of you struggling with the math. We didn't believe in kindergarten because Ellen White didn't believe in kindergarten. Or so we thought. My father chose to live out of the city because the, the city just wasn't good. Three, 4,000 people, are you catching me here? The city amounted to a couple of houses several hundred feet apart on hills with the downtown area. I mean, but we had to live away from the city. So we lived up 20 minutes out of Sonora on 20 acres, and my nearest neighbor was a half a mile by air away. So I developed a rather rich fantasy life as a child. Uh, but in that 20-minute drive, in mostly a 1970 Toyota Land Cruiser with an inline-six, three-speed column shift, you guys know the vehicle? It was that awful limish green with the white top. It's a classic. It's a collectible today. Every, almost every day, as we rode to school in that vehicle, my mom usually picked us up from school, but every day, we talked. And I don't know how he wove it in, but there was always a conversation about religion, about philosophy, about life. There was always a conversation about the scripture somehow. Something we had read maybe in the morning devotional. We did. We had morning worship and evening worship in our home every day. My father, if he didn't come home, my mom was supposed to read it. But I mean, And it wasn't all from a book. We did different things in the evening than we did in the morning. And after church especially, it was not dissect the pastor time. That would have been a little too, too harsh, I think, for my dad. But we definitely did an in-depth analysis of what was said. Now, I know that some of you occasionally remember something I've said and talk about it. I know that that happens from time to time, thank goodness, or I might be in the wrong profession. But every week we would go through, what did you think of this point that this pastor made today? Why do you think that? What do you think of the use of Scripture there? What, what do you think it means then when the Bible says... It was open. It was designed to help me think and see and grow. And as I moved from concrete thinking to abstract thinking, he was right there along the way mentoring. Now, I tell you this story because of our text. I don't know how deeply embedded this text was in my dad's consciousness. But for whatever my parents did, right or wrong, this was one of those things that shaped me spiritually and molded me deeply. It's part of why, a big part of why, I can stand here today. And so I think about this text again. Talk about them when you sit down 
at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, the so-called phylacteries. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And if you visit a Jewish neighborhood or go to a Jewish house, you will see uh, a little scroll embedded in a piece of metal or decorative piece that is attached to the frame of the door. They've taken this literally, but they also do a good job of doing it figuratively. Have you ever wondered how certain communities continue to exist? Take the Amish. How many of you are ready to sign up? No electricity. You have to be a Luddite, basically. Technology beyond, I don't know, pick a date. 1880, you don't get to use it. You have to dress a certain way. Your car runs on methane, and you smell it every drive you take. Okay, you're a little slow this morning. That's okay, it's the heat, I'll forgive you. So... And imagine buggy and horse versus automobile in an accident. You know, talk about the arguments for safety with the SUVs and so forth. So this is a community that believes that you have to not only be simple and plain, but you can't have these technologies or participate in them. No, forget personal computers. Forget email. Forget a telephone. And yet the Amish continue to flourish. They continue to be. Why are they not extinct? Go to downtown L.A. where I I used to live, not downtown, but Beverly and La Brea area, heavily populated with Orthodox Jewish people. And you will see certain sects of them walking around in 109 degrees in a beaver skin cap with shawls and undergarments and shirts and a heavy wool coat and boots with the beard. Who's signing up for that? I'm not making fun of them. I admire their tenacity, their conviction, their courage, but I'm asking in a world in which we put such a high value on cultural relevancy, in a world in which we want to fit in so badly, in a world in which as an Adventist people we're just dying to be known as evangelical instead of a sect or a cult or some sort of... We'll do anything to appear normal almost. How do these communities that are so particular continue? How do they keep going? The answer is shockingly simple. They do an outstanding job of paying attention to their young people and mentoring their young people and teaching them why the particulars, including the beaver skin hat, are important traditions to continue. And I wonder aloud with you today, what would it look like to be a people that is peculiar, not because we're strange, but because we pay attention to our children and our 
children's friends and our nieces and our nephews and our grandchildren? What would that look like? What if we were to take the time, morning and evening, when we go to bed and when we rise, to do something with them spiritually? What if we were to take the time in a commute to mentor? What if we were to imbue them with such a deep sense of the blessing of Jesus in their lives that come hell or high water, they would never leave the faith? What if? Life has no guarantees, no neat packages, nothing I can roll up and tie for you, nothing I can say, do this, do this, do this, and you're going to be fine. But Deuteronomy does tell us these things, does it not? As part of discipleship, Jesus welcomes kids. Jesus says, go make disciples. So all this buildup is to encourage those of you who are old to look at your own habits. You probably have better habits than many who are young, but to look at your own habits and say, how am I fostering, making space for, if you will, a relationship with Jesus in my life? And then how am I sharing that? How am I using that gift to mentor or to direct or to help another? And those of you who are caught up in the sort of span of the middle years, hopefully your careers are going well. Hopefully your children are strong and bright and beautiful. We're thankful for that. Hopefully you've uh, survived financially and you're moving forward. But what about the life that you want for the future and for eternity and the life you want in Christ? It just takes time and the crunch of time in our busy lives is just crushing sometimes. Crushing. And so for you, maybe it doesn't start with morning and evening and during the commute and maybe it starts with one conversation a day or every other day or for those of you who aren't able to converse at all once a week. What does it look like, young people, as you think about your lives and your priorities, to have the law, that is to say, to have the love of God written in your heart in such a way that it's part of you? What are you doing as you develop your minds and your spirits and your futures to see that Christ is in the center of all of that? And finally... How are we helping our kids to be the kind of kids who imitate us in the ways that God would be proud of? Not sitting in line at a store saying, let's go, Chinese, because they've heard us say that in traffic a thousand times. But to be the kind of kids who know Jesus. What does that look like? And so you heard the preamble this morning. You've As Debbie said, you've looked at the other things, for the kids anyway, and for those of you who would be their mentors, their parents, their uncles, their aunts, their grandparents, their teachers, those of you who bring children who are not your children to church, Wednesday night at 7, fireside room, Saturday morning, 9.30, for now, pastor's office maybe, to be moved, 
Sunday night at Brimdahl's home, we will help you learn how to have these conversations morning and evening and when you're walking down the road. We're going to do what we can do to help all of us learn to imprint this sense of Christ, His presence, His love, His grace, His law on our hearts, this covenant He makes with each of us. And collectively, we're going to multi-generationally encourage one another to walk in the way of the Lord because He says, what? Come. Follow me.